afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Institute of World Politics. My name is Dr. Amanda Wan, and I'm the director of the China Asia program here at IWP. For those who are new to IWP, we're a graduate school, independent graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. Uh, we have Doctor of Statecraft and National Security program, which I graduated from last year. And we have seven master's programs, including two online MAs. We have um, 18 certificates of graduate study, as well as a continuing education program. So if you'd like to learn more about our programs, please uh, come speak to me at the conclusion of the event. Or we have a recruiter right there, Mr. Jacob Miller, <laughs> who will be more than happy to assist you. Also, uh, if you'd like to support the work of IWP, please go to iwp.edu slash donate. So today's event is part of the program's China series, and we have Dr. Chris Harmon, uh, who's one of our full-time uh, full faculty members here at IWP, and he'll uh, give a lecture on Maoist Revolutionary War Outside China. And I'm also happy to announce that this lecture is like a preview of his uh, new course on Maoism, which will be launched on July 3rd uh, in our summer session too. And also, Dr. Harmon is teaching a course on military strategy, um, as well as a few other courses on terrorism and counterterrorism. Dr. Harmon, uh, Chris Harmon, directed comprehensive security responses to terrorism at the Daniel K. Inouye Asia Pacific Center for Security Studies, a program detailed in Jane's Intelligence Review. Uh, which is also called Regional uh, Teamwork in September 2018. Dr. Harmon lectured on Maoist revolutionary warfare for many years at the Staff College for Majors at Marine Corps University in Quantico, Virginia, where he later held three academic chairs. He has published on the Peruvian Maoists of Shining Path in the journal Small Wars and Insurgencies. Harmon's eighth book, Warfare in Peacetime is forthcoming this spring. Well, thank you, Dr. Harmon. We look forward to your lecture. Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for coming out. I want to do a few things with you this afternoon, suggest a very few things about Mao and his mind, his way of thinking, uh, talk, talk about, about his revolutionary warfare ideas, uh, and then move abroad and talk about the way his ideas affected people outside China, and um, including mention at the end of some places where there are still Maoist wars ongoing. So to begin with, uh, the, the, the man and his mind, uh, a most interesting one, born in, in Hunan, um, south and east uh, in, in China, and uh, did some interesting things in primary and secondary school, was quite well educated, had a few months in Peking University, but got himself involved in politics and, and uh, didn't go on to do the sorts of degrees that you associate with academics, but a serious thinker to be sure. Uh, he helped found the Chinese Communist Party then at the very beginning of the 1920s. Uh, he has interesting parallels with some of the other revolutionaries in China, including Sun Yat-sen that are complex that experts could write whole books about. 
uh, he has enough grim experiences with early attempts at Chinese success, where a kind of Soviet-style effort to organize in, in uh, factories does not work out so well. And that produces, uh, among other things, the famous Long March, uh, in which he leaves from that area of Hunan and, that, and other areas there, and moves kind of clockwise uh, over a year's time. Uh, ending up well up in the north of China. His ideas about war are key to this lecture and key to my interest in him. Uh, he was, uh, like Lenin, a student of Clausewitz. You can tell from his writings that he took the, the great Prussian thinker very seriously. Uh, you know already, uh, I'm sure, that he was interested in Sun Tzu and that you can see that kind of language in his in his own writing. He was interested in Clausewitz as well. He saw war as a grand social affair uh, and one that was both intensely political uh, and even societal. War was a kind of a struggle. War is an expression of the natural, especially economic tensions and political tensions that arise in society. His notion of what the center of gravity in the struggle would be is famously a choice of the peasantry in China. Having somewhat been stunned by the attempts of, say, 1929 and 30 to capture the factories in places like Shanghai, they're now going to look at the peasantry as the source of power in the future of their revolution. That revolution will be led by a vanguard party. We see here why he's a Leninist and not something else. Uh, he believed in the role of the vanguard party, and naturally, I'm sure, he aspired to be that leader. He's famous for a line about power coming out of the barrel of a gun, but remember, too, it was the party that holds that gun. And there was never any question about just rank militarism in his party. He was very set on the fact that the party would always control martial affairs. He also thought, here's another departure from the Soviets, he thought very seriously that war would be protracted. He never thought a coup sort of thing like Lenin had executed in Russia would be possible. He knew war was going to be protracted and expected to be very, very long term. He's famous for three phases of warfare. And those aren't just an academic twist. They're actually quite useful, I think, for us as people interested in strategy and war and, and military affairs. And this also distinguishes him, again, from some of the other more Soviet-style thinkers, uh, including uh, Lenin. He starts with the notion of the utter weakness of his party and army, and the need to grow from that into something stronger. So he starts at what he calls the strategic defensive. In that, he's doing propaganda. He's working popular support in every way he can. He's advancing these new liberated zones as best he might. Uh, and he's proceeding onward with lots of ambition, but great consciousness about his lack of strength at present. The second state is called equilibrium, and sometimes called stalemate. I don't really like that because it suggests inactivity, and this was fraught with activity. The guerrilla war and the propaganda continue in the second phase of Maoist conceptions of warfare. But you're also moving to something he calls mobile warfare in this equilibrium stage, where increasingly the units are larger, more professional, more able to respond to various contingencies, more disciplined, better armed. Strategic offensive is the last of these phases. 
And that, above all, can be positional in terms of warfare. It can be highly conventional. You can think of the end of the war, you know, the 1947, 1948, 49, in which there were massive armies at play on the continent there. Uh, that's called the strategic offensive stage. And in that, he thinks that by almost a rule of nature, uh, all the uh, efforts made by the party and army will culminate in a conventional offensive which will win the war. I think ahead to Vietnam in 1975. That is the Maoist model, uh, and, and it seems a bit, <coughs> seems a bit arcane. So I was looking today at uh, one of my magazines called The World to Win, and it's by a bunch of Maoist parties, and they're celebrating a Peruvian uh, fellow who's the leader there I'll speak about. And one of the uh, exhortations they publish at the end in bold writing is long live the strategic equilibrium. Um, you know, that's not going to go over as a big banner for most people in most places. Uh, but if you're a serious Maoist, you know that the strategic equilibrium uh, is a lot better, a lot indicative of a lot more progress than you might have seen in phase one warfare. Uh, and therefore, uh, that funny phrase is a kind of, of, kind of claim to, to victory and, and progress. A number of the Maoist groups I've studied are pretty well stuck in that stage one warfare. But for the successes like Mao, like Ho Chi Minh, uh, it, it had to do with growth. Now, most of these leaders I'll show you um, will be smart. Uh, most of them will be quite educated. Almost all of them will be male, although not, not everyone. Uh, and uh, they'll all be sort of internationally minded and consider themselves to be malice. It's not a question of me suggesting to you out of nowhere that they are. Uh, there were quite a few, and they came from all over the world, and they used to come to China for training, or Chinese trainers would sometimes go abroad and see them. Uh, here is uh, the beginnings in Vietnam. A uh, famous uh, man, Ho Chi Minh, he called himself Nguyen uh, I Quoc at one point, or Nguyen the Patriot. He had other names. Uh, he studied in France initially, like a number of the Marxists and Maoists we know from the 20th century. Uh, he was in the French Communist Party. Mind you, the French Communist Party, not say an Indo-Chinese one, um, initially, and he worked in the common term, in effect, for Moscow. He went to a common term school as well, called the University of the Toilers of the East. And he had a deep admiration for Lenin, who wrote a very glowing obituary at one point uh, after Lenin's passing. Uh, he met a number of important generals and began considering uh, how Vietnam would fight its war in military, not just political terms. Uh, he helped found then the Indo-Chinese Communist Party in about 1930, uh, and 20 years later then, he's quite ready when Mao succeeds in China to move to a new phase of warfare in, in hope of independence in Indochina and Vietnam. Uh, and he is taking direct aid from China in the process as well. There's at least, uh, in the initial uh, uh, tranches, if you like, some 20,000 Vietnamese trained in China, and I gather that at least half of those were trained in propaganda rather than military affairs. So uh, the phrase you might know from this world, uh, arcane as it is, of armed propaganda, 
is visible in just that first Beijing aid to uh, Ho's movement. That aid's going to continue. Uh, there'll be another burst of it about 59, and ultimately uh, it'll be a massive amount. Uh, the map shows the progress of the movement, and in each case I'll try to suggest a sort of a oil spot map of, of how the Maoist areas of influence are developing. Uh, this one's set from 1965. Um, the Vietnamese at this stage would be fully on in, in, in phase two warfare. Uh, they have indeed paralyzed the government enough so that they are, they are kind of the strategic equivalent uh, of the government. Uh, and they are able to go back and forth to both higher and lower levels of warfare. A flexibility that bedazzled some and confused plenty and was extremely difficult for the Allies, for the French and then the Americans. Uh, in, in these wars. Uh, so they gain ground in particular places around the country. And they can also go full-on phase three warfare. As you know, from 1968, 72, 75, uh, these were armies that could coalesce into regular military forces and, and indeed rout many enemies, take cities, at least for, for a time being. Uh, they did not particularly worry too much in this earlier periods about Chinese domination. I don't think of their movement. They were grateful to Moscow, grateful to Beijing. It is not till maybe 1960 that you even begin to really see that division of the Sino-Soviet war. Um, but Ho thought of himself as, as uh, quite open to Maoist ideas, and some of his generals were very much so. Uh, and uh, we can see the, a, great, a great deal of influence in that case study. Now, adjacent uh, is uh, the Cambodian case. Here's some of the leaders from the Khmer Rouge. Saloth Sar is the name who uh, used the nom de guerre of Pol Pot. And like Ho, uh, uh, Pol Pot uh, starts as a member of the French Communist Party, working with, with other French in France and pursuing his studies there. And many other Khmer Rouge leaders also had foreign educations, uh, and some, in, some in France, some were teachers. According to our wonderful IWP professor, who knows both uh, Vietnam and Cambodia very well, Al Santoli, uh, they don't ever have a kind of oil spot uh, result, uh, these guys. Uh, this is a map from the early 70s the growth of the organization was not in particular areas which the Maoists liberated and then developed and then self-fusing as wood oil on a cloth. That's where that phrase comes from. They were instead protected, Santoli says, by the Vietnamese army and activists uh, and, and, and authorities. And so that their influence spread in Cambodia under the shelter, if you like, of North Vietnamese that had infiltrated this country in fantastically large numbers, just as they had uh, Laos. So eventually, the Khmer Rouge will, will move away from Moscow and take, take more of the Chinese side in, in, in all this. Uh, and, and then the country is rather whipsawed. Uh, the Khmer Rouge will succeed in 1975, but only hold power for four or five years. Uh, before being shoved out of power by a Vietnamese army. Um, it's a, one of the most complex uh, uh, of all the cases I've tried to study. 
and uh, parts of it still elude me. Uh, but it's good to know that we have uh, Professor Santoli here, who's, who's truly an expert. One of the oldest cases in low intensity conflict, it's in all the kinds of books, and it's the kinds of things that co were covered uh, uh, for, for uh, uh, many years in our professional schools, uh, was the Malaya case. Uh, the famous sort of 12 year example in which uh, there were Maoist revolutionaries in Malaya. The British teamed up with Malaysians and other Commonwealth troops to try to squelch that uh, rebellion. Uh, they succeeded after a great deal of work. Uh, they had a wonderful national politician uh, in, in their camp, Tunku Abdul Rahman. He'll sweep the elections in Malaya in 1955 and go on to become a very important political figure. Uh, the British basically said to their colleagues, if you help us defeat the communist uprising, we will then free Malaya and you'll be able to join the Commonwealth, uh, but uh, you'll be an independent country. That and the famous Briggs plan uh, helped win the war. Uh, it was an extremely innovative operation in which they set up so-called new villages and, uh, and worked to separate the indigenous folks in the country from what they called the CTs, or communist terrorists, who were following a Maoist plan laid out by Chin Peng. Uh, Chin Peng uh, was rather successful in, in one or two ways, but he was finally defeated in 1960 or so, and that's where the old books close. You never see anything else beyond that. Uh, so uh, Noel Heinemann and I were digging around and trying to find a map of, of the post-1960 phase. Chin Peng, truly believing himself a, a protracted war adherent, was not giving up. He had to, def to accept defeat in 60, but the Chinese provoked him to begin a new phase of rebellion, which he did. And there's a fine book about this by Ang Lee Chong, uh, which uh, I hadn't read until five or six years ago. But there is then a phase two of what they call the emergency. And in classic Maoist forms here, you can see the suggestions of their influence within the country in phase two. Uh, they also were very strong up on the Thai border. And in fact, uh, you know, if you're trying to run an insurgency, there's nothing quite like having a safe haven. And they did in Thailand, and it's extremely important that they did. They never lost it. One of the most interesting things about the second phase of this emergency was radio. Here at IWP, we always fix on studying propaganda. And the Malaysian Communist Party was highly sophisticated in this respect. And as their special favorite was, I think, their radio system. They decided that the Chinese would be willing to help out. Initially, they approached uh, Vietnam. They approached, finally, China. And in Hunan proper, they set up their own radio system, a broadcasting system. They had some 80 staff. They had translators. They had reporters. They, they had technical experts and, uh, and readers and text writers. Uh, and for 13 years, out of Hunan, China, in a bricks and mortar place, protected by the Chinese, uh, the Malay Communist Party then broadcast to the region in multiple languages 
and it was very interesting radio. And Anhui Chung has now published a special volume with all the transcripts uh, from all those years that we can come to study the arcane business of Maoism as it works overseas. But they finally lose uh, this as well. Oddly enough, it's Deng Xiaoping who urges them to reignite the efforts in 1961 or so. And later, in 1980, Deng Xiaoping tells him, that's enough. Uh, we'd like you to close down your radio and shift some of your attentions to other things. So they were always heavily, heavily dependent uh, upon Beijing. Now, if there's anything less known, I guess, in America than the second phase of the Malay insurgency, it's this guy. Um, uh, Rohana Wijumira uh, ran something called the People's Liberation Front in Sri Lanka. Um, as you know, there's a couple of big insurgencies in Sri Lanka, and the famous one is by the Tamil Tigers. It's nationalist, it's Tamil, and it's not this. Well, this is the Sinhalese majority, and that's useful. So often when we, when we deal with terrorism, we have the sense that it's always a sort of aggrieved minority. Uh, it's not. Sometimes it's the majority looking for even more power. It could be a state, it could be a sub-state actor, and very powerful. The Sinhalese majority, uh, many of whom were Buddhists rather than Hindus, like some Tamils, uh, followed this man, and in 1970-71 there was a building movement that was based upon Mao. Now, the strange thing is that he was also seen as a nationalist uh, of, for the Sinhalese, and again, a majoritarian within that little world of democratic Sri Lanka. Uh, whether you can merge successfully nationalism and internationalist Maoism is a good question, and it'll keep you uh, busy as a theorist. There is a kind of left-right collusion sometimes in these movements whereby the extremes almost mirror one another and they're opposed to the middle. And he had then uh, behind him a very powerful series of forces in Sri Lanka, but he wanted more and he was trying to overturn the government and achieve complete domination. Um, he had done some progressive uh, movements and established power centers in places like this, but in 1971, the, the uh, police shut him down cold, and he was banned from violent activities, and he became then a pacific uh, politician, at least for a while. But then he revived his interest, he went back to war, and for a long time in the mid-1980s, the country of Sri Lanka was undergoing a most horrific insurgency tens of thousands of people dead, some from the Maoists, some from government counterinsurgents, some caught in between, some in riots and moments of passion that were not calculated in the way government or insurgent moves usually are. So he recovered, uh, but then he was captured at the end of the 80s and defeated. That's not for me. Um, so here we have something even further from China. Uh, it's a long stretch uh, to, to go to, to Peru, but the point of the, of the talk this evening is the way in which internationalism has kind of pushed Maoism out and their own impetus and others in foreign countries that are interested in the polling as well as seeing the pushing 
Uh, and the movement then has advocates overseas. And this is a, an obscure uh, revolutionary magazine, and that is Abimeo Guzman. Um, he has two PhDs. Um, this is him in one of his more reflective and calm modes. Um, uh, he was a visitor to China. He was extremely enthused by everything he saw. And he decided that Peru should be transformed in the Maoist way, despite the fact that it has its own culture, despite the presence of Hispanic culture, uh, despite the Catholicism <coughs> of Peru, uh, he was going to make a Maoist revolution. And indeed, he did rather well. Uh, his liberated zones end up linking together sufficiently so that he had some authority over a full one-third of Peru. One-third. So in the old days, when I was teaching on Sendero you know, terrorism and such, I had trouble finding in the literature or among colleagues who visited the country anyone who knew how they were going to win. How could the Peruvian government prevail against this Maoist war in their midst? But Guzman was doing that well. Uh, he was not just a charismatic. Uh, he called himself Gonzalo. And he, and, he, and he expected his followers to appreciate Gonzalo thought with a capital G and a capital T. But he also was a hardcore Maoist. He called himself the fourth sword of Marxism, Marx, Lenin, Mao, and then Guzman. He had very salty things to say about those terrible revisionists back in Beijing, where they don't understand how important Mao is and how they're trying all this free market economic stuff. They, it made uh, Deng Xiaoping famous and successful. Uh, but Sendero's policies were based on economic autarky, a very peculiar and different sort of viewpoint, uh, both politically and economically. Uh, they had workers' movements. They had women's movements. They had all kinds of political forces. They had intellectual centers. Uh, and they were, in general, uh, rather pervasive. They did, they did quite well. Now, in 92, however, a whole series of government countermeasures, which we could talk about in Q&A, if you like, were put into place uh, and succeeded. And a very clever couple of policemen who founded their own unit within the National Police captured Abeneo Guzman. He went to jail, uh, and you then saw him in, in all his glory. Uh, and there were many pictures of him then in, in the jail jumpsuit. Uh, and he, he uh, lived on for about a couple of more years. And this magazine celebrates him. And in true Maoist fashion, this magazine from 92 uh, calls upon good Maoists everywhere to come to Peru to demonstrate their outrage at his arrests. And so we had, uh, among many others, uh, a delegate apply from Nepal. He wanted to come to Peru uh, and protest. Uh, a Nepalese PhD uh, named Balaram Bhattarai, uh, and there he is on the left. He's one of a very interesting series shown here of leaders in Nepal of the Maoist movement. They had a particular enthusiasm for Peruvian success. You wouldn't think they'd look to Sendero Luminoso in Peru from Nepal, but they did. They thought the purest Maoist form had come to them in that rebellion in Latin America. And certainly they didn't want to look to China anymore, which was a great disappointment to them. Uh, 
Uh, so they self-consciously found themselves on the Maoist model. And they were successful. Uh, they thought they thought Sendero was was blooded, was honest, ideologically was vigorous, and showed all the great spirit that a Maoist should show. And so they chose them. Uh, Batarai has a PhD in urban planning from an Indian university. His dissertation was called "The Nature of Underdevelopment and Regional Structure in Nepal: A Marxist Analysis." Uh, even more powerful on the right here is Comrade Prashanda, uh, shown there. Uh, there are some other leaders. Now, what's interesting any, uh, to any analyst, I think, of security affairs is that this Maoist rebellion doesn't succeed in the way some of the others do. There's not the march to total victory through the three phases and all that. They got into about phase two. Uh, with lots of effort between about 96 and 2002 or 3, right? They reach phase two of Maoist dream. They have activity all over the country in many of these places. Uh, more, more, the more activity, than the more red. But they, they have a national presence. Uh, but then what they do is actually begin pressing on that old Maoist strategy of the United Front, and they begin cooperating with other powers Marxist-Leninists that aren't Maoists, Democrats, party of whatever, collusion with other powers within Nepal, and they find themselves able to do power sharing, which is not at all Maoist orthodoxy, but which did work for them. Um, now, next door, in India, uh, we have uh, the most interesting kind of influences here. This is a kind of pantheon set up in a place called Naxal. Uh, and on the left you have Mao Zedong. Uh, next to him is Lin Biao, who wrote in 65 from Beijing, one of the most important revolutionary tracts that I've ever studied. Uh, it was a pay-on to international revolution. It was entirely Maoist. He was Secretary of Defense, and many thought he would become the Supremo. He later was not. He was demoted. But Lin Biao, B-I-A-O or P-I-A-O, was an exceedingly important guy. And his 65 address um, is, is an interesting one. The next fellow, the third from the left, is Charu Lazonda. And he's deceased. All these men are deceased. And he is known as kind of a founder of the movement in this country. And he died in about 72, so he wasn't in power for very long. And on the right is a poet. Uh, a great <coughs> who's also a Naxalite. They're called Naxalites because it's a small town in West Bengal, near the borders with Bangladesh and such. And there was an incident there which then exploded and became the focal point of a lot of tension and hatreds in, in the country. And gradually, uh, their influence spread from the 60s into what they later called the Red Belt of India. Now that's a rather old map, and uh, most recently, the Indian authorities, with their booming economy and such, have been able to suppress some of this, so it's actually smaller now. But here's an example of the old oil spot <coughs> uh, emerging in India. My last country is the Philippines. 
So in our course, the 706 we'll be introducing here in, in July, as Dr. Warren mentioned, uh, we're going to use as a textbook uh, Julia Lovell's new book called Maoism of Global History. It's from 2019. It's very good in some ways. It's been critiqued by Thomas Marx, who's an expert at NDU, who doesn't think so much of it, and he knows lots. Uh, but it's, by and large, a good and interesting and new book worthy, I think, of us using it. But she doesn't cover <coughs> the Philippines at all. She doesn't cover the JVP in Sri Lanka. There's some gaps in the book. And so here's, a, here's somebody who's quite able to fill a gap for himself. A lifelong writing, speaking, writing music albums, you name it. He was a master of propaganda. Jose Maria Sison died just in December. For a half century, he ran the movement, or was at least its notable head. Uh, but operationally, there were others. Uh, and the movements had a glow, both from his deaths and, in fact, the recent deaths last year of the two best-known operational leaders. New People's Army is founded on Maoist principles. So we all know there's, you know, famous, uh, you know, Insurrection and Aguinaldo runs in 1901. The United States is involved after the Spanish War. Some of you know a lot about the Huck Valhap Rebellion, maybe after World War II. It's a leadership that kind of has one foot in the Stalin camp, one in the Mao camp. But at the time, that was not uh, something that would tear a body apart. Uh, and, and they profited from connections with both. The Huck Valhap were defeated. And then there's phase three. And here he is, here he is. Here's, here's the founder, um, a young professor. Uh, interesting rumors after Duterte became president, uh, some thought that Sison had taught him once years before. And Duterte never denied that either. Um, and it, it suggested a possible peace could emerge in which NPA's uh, issues would be dealt with in the Philippines, but that never quite worked out. Um, the party's founded in 1968, the next year the army. Sison's in charge of both. He founds them both upon Maoist principles. Um, you can read the charter for these kinds of groups, which is a, a great thing to do if you have, you know, the option of reading some American commentator on the NPA, or you can read their charter. I would hope you'd, you'd want to read uh, their charter. Um, he was such a good Maoist that he founded his party on Mao's birthday, 26th December. And he spent his life, in a way, sort of paying beneficence to, 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 the, to the man. Uh, he, did, he did better than the Hukbala Hap, but he's never been able to be successful. This is a map I made a decade back. It's truly the sort of oil spot method. But the Hucks had all been concentrated up here in Luzon, almost exclusively. The New People's Army, refounded in Maoist and, and more recent, was a national effort. They hoped to take any number of those islands in the archipelago and succeed and hold there, transform them, and then move things along to where a national uh, defeat of the government was going to be possible. And so these are some spots for, for activity. It would be propaganda, it would be violence, and, and, and so on. Uh, so they're not focused as they were. And nor are they uh, absent from Mindanao. So often when we see news items, it has to do with Islamist terrorists and their domination of certain areas in the, in the far south. Uh, 
Sulu and some of the islands and, and Mindanao. But in fact, you can see here, New People's Army, the Maoists, have powerful influence in Mindanao. Uh, it's a horrible place to try to govern these days with a mix of, of all kinds of problems and all kinds of different political forces. Uh, and uh, the, the Maoists are there in strength. Um, now, um, as I think then about the kind of the, the, the eight countries I've tried to touch on and offer you uh, as suggestions for thinking about the issue, um, I sort of came to perhaps three conclusions, um, uh, starting with the most obvious. Um, uh, these are wars that are transformative, uh, that are social and political in every respect that a Clausewitz would appreciate, um, and that are succeedingly bloody. Um, the, the insurgency wars are a profound problem for any society. And um, imagine one like the Philippines uh, going for 50 years and still going today. Um, or some of those in northern India, for example, uh, or one or two more that you could probably think of. The second point I wanted to make, I think, was that they're not invincible. Um, I used to like to ask my Marines at, at Quantico sometime, uh, you know, give me some examples of the defeat by a democratic state of guerrillas. Where do the guerrillas lose? And usually there was some kind of pause and then maybe one or two cases would, would come. Uh, sometimes I had an officer who said the guerrillas never, never really lose. States can't beat them. But they can. So we've seen in two cases in Malaya, 1960-1989, the impressive, uh, uh, impressive defeat of a nationwide problem run by the Maoists. We've seen a defeat in Peru, a defeat in Sri Lanka, and there's plenty of other cases, in fact, where guerrillas have been defeated. So it can be done, and it, it's, it's incumbent upon people like you and us here at the Institute to study how those cases worked and how societies were able to defeat the Maoism and how to make democracy prevail. Then my third conclusion is, is, is a much narrower, but also most, most relevant, I think, to this lecture. It's, it's really interesting to me to watch the impulse in China to export their revolution. Uh, they have, it's strong. And it's strongest in the, in the, in the 50s and 60s. Uh, it'll reach an apex in 65 by Lin Biao's pamphlet, uh, as I mentioned. At the same time, they're going to move quickly into the Cultural Revolution, which starts in maybe 66. Uh, and they're talking a lot about the so-called permanent revolution idea, which people like Trotsky and Mao Zedong have always endorsed. Um, it's on the... It's in the extreme left in the, in the, in the, uh, on the standard of, of ideology. It's, it's kind of close to anarchism, but it's not. It's a system they, they, they hope the system can control permanent revolution. And now, now China did so, in fact. Um, the decade after all that, by Mao's time, Mao's death time, say 76, 77, you begin to see suppression of the interest in supporting insurgency overseas. 
and it's marked. Um, and that example I gave in Malaya with the radio is kind of a bellwether, uh, being told, in effect, to, to stop. It seems to me that the answer lies in Beijing's interest in, in keeping good relations with established governments. So they may have given up some of the help to the Malay Communist Party, uh, but they got then help with or from the Malaysian government, with the Singaporean government, with the region. Uh, those countries would then quit complaining about said radio, which they, which they never liked. So it's been interesting, and I think that that change all the way back then with Deng Xiaoping's move into power is suggestive to us of what we're looking at today, in which the Chinese are not so much pushing revolution abroad, but instead working to have good relations with established governments on terms they like in politics and economics and influence and cyber affairs. <clears throat> They're working as hard as ever, but not in so much the direct revolutionary mode. I have found a fascinating case of the United Lost State Army in Burma, which is powerful, which is totally indebted to the Chinese uh, for their uniforms and their high-tech weapons. And they're a serious threat to Myanmar, but they're not trying, it seems to me, to overturn that national government. They're only trying to hold their little parts of what's called Shan State. They want complete power there, and they might talk sometime about federalism or something, but they don't seem to be looking to overthrow Burma. So China then is working both with that proxy, but also with the Burmese national government. So it does seem to me to be that the last quarter century, the 20th, last quarter of the 20th century, then suggests something about where China is today and where some of its influences are. And with that, I'd like to turn it over to Amanda to draw out what you wish to discuss and all that. Thank you so much for such an informative lecture, and um, let's give him So, yes. Thank you very much, Christopher. Excellent lecture. Uh, I uh, used to drink beer with uh, back in his last few years on Earth, uh, with, to, to me, I consider it to be, when you said the state wins, this is the epitome of the individual who represents that state. Do you have any comments on my dear old friend who uh, spent his last few years in Falls Church, Virginia, about Ed Lansdale and the Hawks in Philippines? Yes. Um, it, Jack's uh, interested in the senior U.S. advisor to the Philippine government uh, after 1945. And it, it's a great story, and you really want to read uh, In the Midst of Wars by Edward Lansdale. Um, I once had a signed copy, and I gave it to an officer, and I'm still regretting that decision. Uh, Lansdale... <laughs> I, had, I had one. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, Edward Lansdale was uh, in the OSS, he was in CIA, he was an army officer, uh, he was an impressive advisor. Uh, it was his uh, chance to work with the Filipinos during the war, and then he remained there and was an advisor to the president. It's important to know that he had a partner way more influential than him 
Edward Lansdale partnered up with Ramon Magsaysay, um, who is a, a kind of hero in Filipino post-war affairs. Uh, he'd been a guerrilla against the Japanese, so he had that kind of street credibility. He was a wonderful personality, very charismatic, uh, in a society which uh, put a lot on kind of uh, class and dress at political levels. He was very down to earth, and he would sort of wander into a beer bust somewhere with an Aloha shirt on and charm everybody and then disappear in a Jeep and go somewhere else and bust a guy for corruption or go somewhere else and promote on the spot an officer who was doing particularly well. Um, uh, Ramon Xaisai was, uh, was the reason that the Philippines remained a free and independent republic and the American Ed Lansdale gets a lot of credit for supporting him and for his efforts in rising him. He also promoted him in this town. He was a master of publicity. All you public diplomacy fans would want to know that Ed Lansdale had formerly been in San Francisco an advertising executive. And he put all that to, 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 uh, to work as well as his own skills uh, and did extremely well. Uh, Magsaysay goes on then to defeat the Huck Balahab, and by 53-54, that insurgency, which had been very powerful in Luzon, uh, was, was broken. And Louis Tarouk came in out of the field and just gave up. And in part was because of the incredible personality and drive of Ramon Magsaysay. You can see a big statue of him in Manila, and um, he had a well, he had a wonderful creed, which I'll give to anybody. I have a copy of it. On the, on the statue in Manila is a creed of some nine or ten principles, which he took into public service. And they do uh, good for anyone to read them. He's a wonderful man. Uh, I say all that. It's probably longer than I should have answered. But I would like to say that... Um, uh, Lansdale is somehow sometimes dismissed by Americans because of what he couldn't do in Vietnam afterwards. And Ramon Magsaysay is somehow sidelined incredibly um, as though he were kind of a toady of the Americans. Um, a Pulitzer Prize winning book by Stanley Carnell called In Our Image has encouraged this uh, ridiculous view of Ramon Magsaysay. Um, he's a hero. Next question. All right, next question. Why were the Maoists so evangelical initially and then changed to being more cooperative? Right. Um, the um, I guess that goes to the, the, you know, the larger question of the kind of fervor within a revolution. How does that begin and, and then how does it wind out? Um, you know, uh, our friend Clausewitz was very aware that you could have a, such a dynamic personality and leader that that could actually be the center of gravity of a movement or a state. And I know he was probably fascinated by Napoleon uh, he'd seen other kinds of leaders, uh, so traditionally it's kind of the more the more predictable thing. Like the greatest army is going to be the center of gravity, but it could be the personality of a revolutionary leader. Maybe he was interested in Danton or you know Napoleon or someone like that. Um, 
And then um, education and, and training um, are, I think, key to the furthering of the revolutionary spirit. You know, so when the French revolutionaries went to it in 1789, they published a declaration that included everybody. You know, so the, the injured would be, would be in the hospital, but they'd be rolling bandages for the soldiers out in the field. You know, um, the women would take care of the men who'd been wounded. Um, you know, the children could join certain uh, patriotic societies. Uh, and the declaration says, and the old men would go down to the, uh, the city square and, and speak about the revolution. Uh, and so there was that kind of fervor. And it frightened, as you know, the other Europeans. And so they, they began to, the monarchs kind of uh, leagued up as against these guys from, from France that could be so threatening. Um, you know, but then what, what, what kills that spirit? Um, so sometimes there's not enough uh, education by, by some of these leaders. I mean, if you imagine this fellow working from his young days um, through all of his life to publish uh, a fantastic amount of stuff and to always be updating his Maoist thoughts so that his latest essay on economics covers, you know, the most recent sanctions by the Americans on country X or something or whatever the IMF is doing that's evil. Uh, he was continuously striving to keep Maoism on that cutting edge of progress and newsworthiness and, and, uh, and moving forward uh, to show the strength of the ideology. Um, I met uh, the head of one of their education people, their divisions, and got to interview him for a while. And the fire had kind of gone out of him. Fire of a lot of people on personal grounds, uh, when they have kids, when they get married, when they get wounded, when they get exhausted in the field. Um, uh, we had a couple, there was an American named William Pomeroy who uh, was basically run into the ground during the Huck Bellahap uh, Rebellion. He did his memoirs. He never quit it. But he got exhausted by age and debilitated by disease, trying to live in the jungle. So sometimes it's ideological, and sometimes it's it's more physical. And I guess where my um, I started right here in '03 on how terrorist groups end. And um, there are a lot of cases like the two modern Sri Lankan insurgencies, like the two cases in Malaya, where government action was key. Repression, military operations, uh, intelligence improvements, uh, growth in the economy, on and on. Uh, but it's very often success or action, counteraction by a state that will, that will do it. Um, there are many, many cases in which terror groups or insurgents have been defeated. And sometimes it's more brutal than we'd like, but it can be state security uh, officials handling that and doing it. So in the literature which has emerged in the last 20 years on how terrorist groups end, there's way too much fascination on the morphing into pacific groups. There are cases where that happened. JVP in Sri Lanka is a pacific political group, but that kind of forgets the fact that they got crushed twice by security forces and decapitated by the loss of their leader. Um, M19 in Colombia is an open political party, but they also took a whipping from security forces at one point and were kind of pushed along into that track. And they're not very important political party either. So state counteraction, I think, could be very, very important in that. 
thank you very much for your presentation. I am Dr. Elaine Saray, Associate Rector for UACU. Um, and I'm, my question has to do very specifically about a relatively recent trip, uh, given the global pandemic. Uh, twice I was in China in 2019, January of 2019, and then December of 2019. And you've made many points of the dynamics of information, propaganda, visual presentations, and so forth. Um, when I was there, I noted immediately in January of 2019, which was the same in December, uh, at the, uh, at the uh, Forbidden City, the, the portrait of Mao was greatly reduced. It, was, it had been very, it had been incredibly large, of course, but it was incredibly reduced. And it coincided with other economic things that were going on in China at, the t at that very specific <coughs> time, which was some of the reason I was there too. So um, what do you think about uh, Xi's view of Mao, about the diminishing, and now maybe even the resurrecting to some degree? I don't know. Would you like to comment on that? Uh, the, the book by Julia Lovell goes into this in great detail. I think you, you'd all enjoy uh, Maoism and Global History. They, they give quite a lot of attention to that. Um, my sense is that um, uh, Xi Jinping has done what, what leaders in, in the communist states often do, which is sort of trying to take advantage of the best of the legacy of those behind them, but also suggest the way they're moving ahead. So his problem is that he doesn't see progress in communizing all the farms in China. You know, they tried that. He doesn't want to build a steel mill in every backyard. You know, they tried that. He's, he's the last thing he wants to see is a cultural revolution. No, thank you, because um, it could get out of hand. But he is drawing upon the legacy of the great founder of the state, uh, a man who achieved amazing things in the field and who brought the Communist Party into power. And so he wants to kind of keep that legacy. Uh, and certainly he believes in Maoist tenets like complete political control of the military and like complete charge of part, by the party of all affairs. Um, we've become loathe to speak of totalitarianism. Our newspapers never say that, you know, uh, uh, anymore. And I think we're fascinated by economic, uh, quote, liberalism in some ways. But politically, it remains very much a totalitarian state. And there's many gruesome cases in which that's brought to mind, like the, the Uyghurs, for example. Um, uh, and, and so um, I think he wants to keep the best that he can of that legacy, but not be straightjacketed into it. He knows that for a generation, they haven't followed the Maoist path in economics. Uh, some of the other differences are that he, you know, that Dung starts as a kind of reducing the number of men and women in the, in the uh, Liberation Armed Forces and enhancing weapons and technology. So there were dramatic cuts. So they no longer keep that conception of people's war uh, alive so much. And so the short of it is that I, I agree with you, they have in many ways uh, reduced the size of the portrait. Uh, it is a calculated decision. 
there will still be a lot left of the Mao legacy, but they're not going to advertise it top drawer. And uh, I made some study uh, a couple years back of the number of their current Defense Department documents, and I was quite struck how few references to Mao there are. Very few. Very few. Yes, there are some, but there are also references to Europeans of the 19th century, or Napoleon, or Alfred Thayer Mahan. Mm -hmm. By the way, the Chinese admirals are reading Alfred Thayer Mahan. We should, we should wonder about that. Um, that's true. Um, so in, in, their, in their official parlance and all, they, they want to keep some of the best of that, but without being constricted on economic grounds and some of the other, some of the other legacy items. Well, due to the time limit, we'll just take one more question. Um, thank you for your presentation. Um, you mentioned uh, Maoism in China, India, Nepal, Cambodia, Vietnam, Peru. These are all, are all developing countries. Um, on your left, there's this interesting poster that deals with um, radicalizing part of the American population. So I was wondering if you could discuss Maoism uh, as a phenomenon in developed countries. Yes. Um, uh, I, I, I help. Uh, my, my colleagues with with these and bringing setting them up because of, on the left we have the the kind of classic uh, upbeat uh, we can you know reach the top of any mountain sort of approach that was uh, very common in that revolutionary period uh, with you know the appropriate readings peeking out of the tunic so that when you're on break you're you're not wasting your time. Uh, the, uh, the equality of, of man and woman, uh, which was a theme that the Chinese monasts uh, pushed hard, um, and a lot of other uh, subjects then, which are, uh, which are classics. Uh, that's about 69, 70, same as the other one. The other one is uh, like the second face of Janus, you know, that also inherent in Maoism is its incredible uh, interest in political violence, conviction that reforms are fatuous. The only way you're going to change the world is by violent revolution, and that you should get on with that. Um, uh, this in particular is use of a, a, a 1963 Maoist speech about the deprivation of blacks in America. Uh, it's been used here, and there's a date on the thing for 68, but the text I found is actually 63. Um, uh, we have uh, the, the, uh, the Americans who are infuriated by the capitalist and democratic political shams that are the United States. And in the lower left corner, we have the U.S. Capitol in flames. Uh, this is, again, an original from 6970 given to me by one of my Asian studies professors. Uh, and that one is in the Library of Congress as well. You can see it there. Uh, the other one on the left, I'm, I'm not too sure of. Amanda, I think we've run out of time. <laughs> We're right on time. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Martin. for coming uh, to today's event at IWP and before we conclude um, I want to share that our gala is coming up soon 
which is going to be held at the International Spy Museum on October 26th. So if you'd like to come, please go to iwp.edu and then check out our uh, upcoming events webpage. Thank you.